The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today. We have a really great guest, and I'm so excited to introduce him to you. His name is Gene Bauer. He's the president and co-founder of an organization called Farm Sanctuary. Their mission is to protect farm animals, farm animals, say that three times fast, from cruelty to inspire change in the way that society views and treats farm animals. And they're also promoting compassionate vegan living. And today, because it's Go Green Radio, we're going to be talking about some of the environmental impacts of factory farming, where the majority of our meat production and dairy and eggs all come from. And Gene is going to walk us through what's going on with our food supply in this regard and what some of our alternatives may be if we decide that, hey, this isn't okay with me. What can I do to live a different lifestyle? Well, welcome to Go Green Radio, Gene. I'm so glad to have you on. Hi, Jill. It's great to be here with you. Thank you. You know, I'm kind of jealous because I know that this weekend, Farm Sanctuary here in California has a big event. And let me tell you, I would be there in a heartbeat if I didn't already have some big family plans that I can't break. But um, your sanctuary here in California has got a, a hoedown going on, and I wish that I could make it up there to meet you in person. But it's great to talk to you uh, right now here with our listeners on board. One of the things I'd love to ask you, Gene, is... How did you first become aware of the conditions that were going on in factory farms in America, and what inspired you to expose this information to the public? Where did it all begin for you? Well, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, seeing many problems around me in the world. You know, the environment was being destroyed, people were suffering, animals were suffering, and I basically didn't want to be a cog in a wheel of a system that I thought was causing such enormous harm. So I began by volunteering with human rights organizations and environmental organizations. And as time went, it became apparent that the factory farming industry is something that causes harm to the the entire planet in in very profound ways. And so in the mid-1980s, I I delved more into it, learned about what happens to the animals, and learned about the intense suffering they experience and felt it was an issue that needed attention. It was something that not very many people were focusing on or thinking about. So in 1985, I became a vegan, so I eat no animal products. And then in 1986, I co-founded Farm Sanctuary to address this issue in a very uh, direct way. And so we started visiting farms and stockyards and slaughterhouses to document conditions and to see firsthand what was happening. And we would find living animals literally thrown in trash cans, or left and discarded on piles of dead animals. And so we started rescuing these animals and taking care of them and 
you know, pretty soon we needed a farm, and thankfully we, we were able to acquire one, and we, we currently operate three sanctuaries, one in Watkins Glen, New York, and two in California, one in Northern California, and one just outside of Los Angeles. And these are facilities that are open for visitors. We encourage people to come, get to know the animals, uh, hear their stories, learn about where they came from, learn about factory farming, and hopefully people go away with um, ideas and are inspired to, you know, eat in a more healthful, compassionate way. And that means shifting towards more plant foods and away from animal foods. Well, that's awesome, Gene. I mean, that's a great backstory. And even going a little bit further back, um, I was looking at your bio. And one of the things that jumped out at me was that you have a master's degree in ag economics from Cornell. That's pretty impressive. Now, I would imagine that many of your classmates are probably working in big ag. I mean, that's kind of um, the the career path as far as I know for that kind of a degree. But I'm curious how you've utilized your degree in your role as an activist. Yeah, well, going to Cornell um, and studying agricultural economics also included going to animal science classes and getting a first-hand understanding of what these agriculture students are taught and how they're indoctrinated, in a sense, and acculturated to accept cruelty and bad practices and as normal. So I, I actually went to Cornell as a vegan, and I remember distinctly one animal science class uh, before we went out to the facilities where they kept the animals, and the professor spent a lot of time warning the class about animal rights activists. And here I was, an animal rights activist, in this class being warned about myself. It was pretty humorous and pretty interesting. What did but he say? I'm just curious. He was, he was talking about how there might be people in the barn that don't belong there, that they might be loitering around and not, uh, you know, again, not part of the class. And if any of us saw somebody hanging around the barn that we didn't know, or that didn't look familiar, that we should call the authorities and have them dealt with. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, go on. Tell us how your education has, has played a role in your activism. Well, you're having a master's degree in agricultural economics from Cornell, which is a large agribusiness school, gives me a certain credibility. And, you know, oftentimes the factory farming industry wants to paint animal advocates as urban idealists who really don't understand what happens on farms. And the fact that I have this master's degree in, an agri in agriculture from Cornell, which is a big agricultural university, uh, makes it very hard for the industry to say that uh, we don't know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I'm, I'm wondering with uh, the economics piece of your education, how are you able to speak to the alternatives to factory farming? Because I would imagine, um, and even in just some of the, the reading that I did to get ready for this show, um, that a lot of people say, look, hey, if we're going to feed the masses, we've got no other choice. This is the way we've got to do it. Otherwise, you know, our food wouldn't be affordable and the, the poor would suffer malnutrition and, and a lot of people would go hungry. Economically speaking, is that the case? No, absolutely not. Economically speaking, the best way to feed a growing human population on Earth is to grow more plant foods and fewer animal foods. It requires enormous amounts of resources, including fossil fuels, including water, including land, labor, energy, 
to be growing uh, crops that are then fed to animals, and then the animals are raised and slaughtered and used for human food. If we grew crops and consumed them directly as human beings, uh, we would require about one-tenth of the amount of resources that we require by um, raising these crops and, and using them to feed animals and grow animals for food. And, you know, this is a, an industry that uh, is bad to animals, bad to the environment, and the consumers, too. And, you know, I've spoken to these industry groups from time to time over the years, and I've made the case that, you know, farmers work hard, so we respect that. You know, but the key question is, if farmers really want to feed the world and provide wholesome, affordable food, uh, the best way to do it is plant foods. And, and I've made that case over and over, and the evidence is very clear. And when I've presented this, the agribusiness people respond, and, and they believe, and they have that assumption that you just articulated, that the best way to feed the world is through intensive animal production. And I finally at one point went back to them and said, where do you guys get your information that in industrial animal production is the best way to feed the world? And they told me the name of the book they got it from, and it was called Saving the Planet with Pesticides and Plastics. And that was really the name of the book. So it really, I think, speaks to uh, the, our human capacity for deluding ourselves and coming up with excuses and reasons to do things that are not necessarily good things to do. Mm-hmm. Well, for those of us who are city slickers uh, and and really are kind of far away from rural America and the farms that feed us, help us to envision what chickens and pigs and cattle and turkey and you know some of these other animals are enduring in order to give us meat and dairy and eggs. Describe their lives in a way that we might be able to imagine it with all five of our senses and understand their plight. Well, you know, on these industrial farms, the animals are seen just as commodities, not as living, feeling creatures. They're crowded into cages and crates and packed so tightly they can't move. They're packed by the thousands or sometimes hundreds of thousands in these massive warehouses. Uh, they are constantly breathing in fumes from their excrement, you know, because we have that many animals in such a confined area. You have enormous quantities of manure that uh, are accumulating underneath them, and and that you know throws off toxic fumes. Um, and you know the, these are animals that you know have a desire to live and to move and to do what all of us want to do. We don't want to be cramped into a small box where we can't move our whole life. But that's the case. So in the case of egg-laying chickens, for example, you have birds packed in these small wire cages called battery cages. They're lined up in rows, stacked in tiers in huge factory warehouses. The birds are packed so tightly they can't even stretch their wings. Uh, they're constantly scraping against the metal bars of their cages so their feathers wear off. They end up with bruises and abrasions on their bodies from that sort of confinement. Um, I mean, these birds are packed so tightly, in fact, that each is given less space than a sheet of paper to live her whole life on. Then after about a year of that, uh, when her egg production rate starts dropping off, she's sent to slaughter and then killed. Now, in some cases, they're killed for chicken pot pies or, or, or low-grade chicken products, but increasingly what is happening is that you have a plentiful supply of these bigger, heavier meat-type birds because there's two distinct distinct strains of chickens. They have the egg-laying hens who've been genetically bred for egg production, uh, but they, get, they don't grow very big. And then there are the meat typers genetically bred to grow twice as big and twice as fast as normal. So we now have lots of these heavier meat birds available, 
So the slaughterhouses, in many cases, don't want to waste their time with these beat-up, skinny, spent hens from the, the battery cage operations. So sometimes they're just killed right at these uh, at the egg factory. Sometimes there's been instances where they're literally thrown into wood chippers to be killed, and they're just discarded like refuse, and it's, it's atrocious. And it really speaks to the lack of regard that this industry has for these animals who are living, sentient creatures. Mm-hmm. And um, so another, other animals that are confined include veal calves for veal production. They're chained by the neck in these two-foot-wide wooden crates, and that's how they live their whole life. As people have learned about veal production and have been horrified uh, to hear about it, veal consumption has dropped significantly. Mm-hmm. And that speaks to the fact that most people are humane and don't like to support cruelty. And there's other conditions like that, too. In, in the case of the pig industry, you have these breeding sows. The mother pigs that give birth and then their babies are taken away to be found for slaughter. Uh, the mothers live in gestation crates for most of their lives. This is a two foot wide metal enclosure. It's called a gestation crate because it's where she's kept during her pregnancy. And uh, she, right before giving birth, she goes into another crate called a farrowing crate where the mother also just has two feet of space. So she can only let, stand up and lay down. That's all she can do. Uh, when she lays down, uh, the babies can nurse through the bars, and and they will be there for about three weeks nursing from the mother. And then the babies are taken away. Uh, the mother is put back into the gestation crate and begins another cycle of impregnation, birth, reimpregnation, and that's her life. So you know, these animals are seen just as production units, um, not as living creatures. And, and when people hear about it, it's upsetting. And, and I think, thankfully, there's more and more awareness now with YouTube, with Facebook, social networks, people are able to share this information and educate others about the cruelty of factory farming. Well, and I think a lot of people think or just choose to believe, because that's the easier thing to do, that the slaughtering of these animals for meat production is humane and painless, uh, similar to when you gently put an ailing cat or dog to sleep. But what's the truth about the slaughter process? Well, it's, it's very different. I mean, when you're putting an ailing cat or dog to sleep, you know, you are doing that for the animal's well-being because they are suffering and, you know, at a certain point, the quality of life may not, you know, warrant continuing to, you know, try to keep a certain suffering individual alive. But in the case of animals slaughtered for food, uh, these are young animals that are killed who, you know, could live many, many years if they were allowed to live and given a decent life. Uh, cows, for example, could live 20-plus years, but they're killed at just a couple years old for meat. Pigs can easily live about 10 years or so, and they are killed at about six months old uh, to be slaughtered for meat. Um, chickens, the ones that have been genetically bred to grow very fast, very large, are killed at about six or seven weeks old. So these are very young animals that are being killed, so it's very different than euthanizing an ailing animal. Um, and it's and, not painless, is it? Oh, not at all. At, at the slaughterhouse, these animals are killed as fast as possible because time is money, and the industry slaughterhouses want to move them through as quickly as possible. So sometimes you have problems with live animals literally being cut up uh, and having parts of their bodies removed while they're alive and conscious. It's, 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 it's atrocious. It is, it is disturbing, and it is... It is reality, and it happens uh, on a regular basis. 
Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break on that note, and but we're going to come back and talk about the environmental and the human health impacts of factory farming and how our food supply is being managed. And so don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could join us. You know, we're talking about a topic that is uncomfortable um, for anybody who's a meat eater, anybody who consumes dairy and eggs, and I will admit I am one of those folks. Um, you know, our last segment we were talking about some of the conditions that farm animals endure while they are part of the factory farming industry. Um, but this is a show about environmental impact. So we're going to be talking about the environmental and the human health impact that the factory farming industry is having upon our planet and upon our own health. You know, Gene, when I first started my nonprofit organization, the Go Green Initiative, which is an environmental education program way back in 2002, I was able to Google the term go green and nothing came up. And now, of course, going green is far more prevalent. And nonetheless, though we have a lot of people recycling and saving energy, even delving into composting, the idea that our food choices actually impact the environment is still a relatively new concept to a lot of everyday people. So what I'd like for us to do during this segment is talk about some of the environmental issues that are 
present and exacerbated by factory farming. And I'd like to begin with carbon emissions. Talk to us about the carbon impact of creating food in this manner. Well, the United Nations actually put out a report a couple of years ago called Livestock's Long Shadow. And in that report, they talked about how the livestock industry contributes more to greenhouse gas emissions than the entire transportation industry. So if you took all the cars and trains and boats and planes and combined the amount of emissions coming from those, it would be less than those that come from animal agriculture. So it's really good that people are carpooling and riding their bikes or taking public transportation or doing a variety of things in that arena to curb their carbon footprint. Um, They could do even more by choosing to eat plant foods instead of animal foods. And in some of the areas where you have carbon that is generated is through you know, growing crops. You need to plow enormous uh, expanses of acreage to grow crops for animals. Uh, usually these are fertilized with petrochemical fertilizers, uh, and they're used herbicides and pesticides also made with petrochemicals. Uh, and then those crops are harvested with tractors that are using fossil fuels. And then those crops are then fed at, or transported to animals and fed, the animals are fed, the animals are raised, and they're kept oftentimes in these industrialized, uh, intensive factory farms that are very energy intensive as well. You have, um, fans to try to keep it a livable condition in the hot weather. You have heating, uh, equipment to, to keep things warm in the cold weather. You have automatic food delivery systems and manure removal systems that all take energy. And then the animals are raised uh, and fattened, and then they're ultimately transported out to a slaughterhouse. Uh, And at the slaughterhouse, there's enormous energy use as well uh, in the killing of the animals, but then also in the refrigerating of of the meat afterwards. And that meat then is transported, and it has to be refrigerated that entire time. So... You have a variety of places where you are using energy and contributing to the carbon uh, footprint uh, by consuming animal foods. And, um, you know, a lot of times we grow up believing that we need to eat animal foods for protein, but in fact, we can get all the protein and all the nutrients we need by eating plant foods. And, and that's what I've been doing since 1985. And I'm really glad that more and more people are starting to recognize uh, the environmental and other consequences of our food choices. And we're starting to see some some positive shifts, I think, now uh, towards more plant-based consumption patterns. Mm-hmm. Well, how how does factory farming impact water quality? Because that's something that a lot of people don't realize, but I think that we're going to see heightened awareness of anything that impacts either water supply or water quality as we, you know, as we start to deal with droughts, you know, we've had um, severe droughts in the plain states and in several states, you know, last year was a record drought for a lot of states throughout the U.S., and I think that, that anything that's impacting our water is going to become more and more um, important to us. Talk about the impact that, that factory farms have on our water supply and how that differs from you know, the, the impact that maybe a more humanely run farm might have on our water. No, that, that, in terms of water, uh, factory farming you know, drains scarce and valuable water resources uh, on the front end, and then it pollutes water on the back end. So on the front end, you know, you need lots and lots of water, and sometimes 
you know, cropland is irrigated to grow crops to feed animals. And so there's an awful lot of water used that, you know, we wouldn't be using if we were eating the crops directly. We would be saving. There was one report that actually talked about how it takes 100 times more water to feed school kids meat meals versus vegetarian meals. So there's the crops that have to be grown. There's a lot of water that can go into that. Um, There's also the slaughterhouses. There are some slaughterhouses that will use a million and a half gallons of water a day in the processing of these animals. Um, and if you look at our water resources, you know, the Colorado River no longer even reaches the ocean because water has been taken from it. And agriculture is one of the primary uh, industries that takes water from the Colorado River as well as from the Ogallala Aquifer in the Great Plains. Um, out in California, Tulare County is the country's largest dairy-producing county, and it's named after Tulare Lake. Tulare Lake used to be the largest freshwater lake west of the Great Lakes in uh, America. Mm-hmm. Tulare Lake does not exist anymore. It's been drained, and all the water coming into it has been tapped by agriculture. So this is an industry that uses scarce resources, and it's paying less than the market value it has. This is one of the subsidies that agriculture gets. It has preferential access to water, to fossil fuels, to land. Uh, and so it's not paying its fair share of taxes, so it's squandering these valuable resources. And then, after it takes these resources, it pollutes them. Um, and on factory farms, animals are routinely fed uh, manure, believe it or not, uh, but they're also fed antibiotics on a regular basis because this makes the animals grow faster and keeps them alive in these filthy conditions. And so as a result of that, you have manure that is laced with antibiotics and antibiotic-resistant bacteria that is now getting into surface water, and it's even been found in groundwater downstream from factory farms, antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So um, it pollutes waterways after squandering scarce water resources. And, um, you know, we, we would do much better to shift towards eating plant foods instead of animal foods to shift towards a more natural, healthful, community-oriented farming system. And and thankfully, there are more farmers' markets now that are popping up, community-supported agriculture programs that are popping up, that are providing more healthful produce to more communities around the country. And by going to those and supporting farmers' markets and CSAs and and community gardens as well, uh, citizens can make a big difference uh, towards lightening uh, the the amount of water that we're using. Mm-hmm. You know, let's talk about a little bit more about the human health implications of factory farming because you were touching on, you know, some of the antibiotics that are used. Some of that is used to produce, you know, rapid growth rates amongst the farm animals, but some of it is used to, you know, sort of um, try and keep them therapeutically on these antibiotics so that, you know, they can survive pretty unsanitary and sickening conditions. I'm wondering how many people would eat meat if they knew that the animal that they were eating was sick before it died. I'd like for you to talk about the ill health that many of the animals in factory farms suffer and the implications for humans if we consume their flesh. I mean, should we be concerned that eating sick animals could make us sick? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'd be very concerned about eating these sick animals. And what is, what is shocking is that the United States Department of Agriculture, which inspects and oversees operations at slaughterhouses, explicitly allows animals who are diseased 
to be slaughtered and used for human food. Um, I mean, it's shocking, but it's a fact. And we actually had litigation with the USDA, and we argued that diseased animals should not be used for food. Uh, their response to us was that it was common and legal and appropriate for diseased animals to be used for human food. So, so that's a common practice. And if a farmer has animals who are getting sick, the typical response is not to take care of them and provide them with antibiotics on the farm, unless they're a very valuable animal worth a lot of money. In some di- cases, dairy cows would, would fit that description. Uh, but most other animals, like chickens and pigs, um, unless they're really high-quality breeding stock in the farmer's estimation, are just sent to the slaughterhouse. They're culled from the herd, is how the industry puts it. And so when you have sick animals uh, on farms, usually what happens is they are sent to the slaughterhouse to be killed for human food. And once they get to the slaughterhouse, they're not tested for various diseases. And there was a situation, uh, to illustrate this point, uh, in New York State, and there were some chickens that were sent to a slaughterhouse in New York City that were going to be slaughtered and used for human food. Um, we were able to have those chickens uh, removed from the slaughterhouse and brought up to Farm Sanctuary in upstate New York. And because those chickens were being removed from the slaughterhouse, and because they were going to live and be outside and innate in an environment uh, where they could potentially infect other animals with disease, uh, we were required to have them tested for uh, avian influenza mm-hmm. and other diseases. And it turns out they had avian influenza. So if these chickens stayed at the slaughterhouse and were killed for human food, uh, they would have been infected or they were infected with avian influenza, and that would have gone into the food supply. So, that, so that's just an example of you know how animals with diseases are routinely sent to slaughterhouses, mm-hmm. are routinely killed and used for human food. And we sort, the USDA sort of takes a, a don't-look-don't-find approach to that. Mm-hmm. That is gross. <laughs> no yeah, doubt about it. it. And that's concerning. Um, and that's, that's something that we all need to be considering. Um, we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we're going to be talking about the work of Gene's organization, Farm Sanctuary, what they're doing to address these issues and how we can all get involved. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Tolvanta Energy, visit us today at www.tolvantaenergy.com. 
Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Admittedly, this topic today is tough. Um, I know that a lot of our listeners are not vegetarians. They're not vegans. I'm not either. And this is a tough topic. Um, we're talking about the implications of the factory farming industry that we have in America. You know, we all want to believe that our food is safe, that our food industry is, you know, is responsible. I mean, we're living in a first world country and that, you know, that Somebody out there is looking out for our best interests. But what we're hearing is that, you know, the factory farm industry, um, may not be what's, uh, what we think it is. Um, that it, you know, there may be some conditions for animals that are really sad, really hard for, you know, anybody with a, with a heart to, to accept, but even if you don't really care about you know animal conditions, if that's not your thing, learning the environmental impact, the downstream impact that these factory farms are having on our water quality, on our air quality, on carbon emissions, um, you know that's a big deal. But even for some of our listeners who maybe aren't even very ardent environmentalists, um, just learning about the human health impacts that factory farms can have and and the sick animals that are being sent to slaughter that may end up on our plate or even the animals that aren't necessarily sick but have been fed low doses of antibiotics to keep them thriving, um, maybe not happily, but at least to the extent that they can make it to the slaughterhouse in these factory farms and that these antibiotics at low doses are creating uh, superbugs, antibiotic-resistant uh, strains of bacteria that are not only impacting animals but also impacting humans. And when we start to talk about the human health implications, that's when you know everybody who's putting food on their table for their family every night starts to perk up because uh, this is impacting all of us, and it's something that we need to be concerned about, and it's something that we can take action to address. Gene Bauer, our guest today is the president and co-founder of an organization called Farm Sanctuary. If you want to check out his website, it's really great. There's lots of information, lots of um, you know great pictures of happy, healthy farm animals, some really informative videos. Don't close your your 
tab in your web browser where you're listening to us on Voice of, um, voiceamerica.com. Keep listening to us. But if you want to open a new tab in your web browser, you can go to www.farmsanctuary.org and check it out as we talk. You know, Jean, I'd love for you to talk about the history of your organization. Talk to our listeners about how you started this organization, when you started this organization, kind of the genesis of it all. Talk about the beginning of Farm Sanctuary. Sure. Well, I actually grew up in, in Los Angeles, California, so I didn't have a lot of experience with farming or, or farm animals. And so when I co-founded Farm Sanctuary in 1986, I thought it was very important to see firsthand what was happening and to document the conditions that these animals were enduring. So I started going into farms and stockyards and slaughterhouses and just started witnessing what was happening and would find living animals literally thrown in trash cans or on piles of dead animals. So we started taking them home, taking care of these animals, and watching them recover. And as these animals recovered and uh, their lives were transformed from being seen just as commodities, as production units, where they've only known cruelty to becoming parts of our family, in a sense, and companions, and, and watching their personalities start to come out and start to flourish and to, to, for them to start to blossom was a very empowering, transformative experience for us, as well as, as for the animals, I'm sure. And so we now operate three sanctuaries for rescued farm animals. We have one in Washington, New York, one in Orland, California, which is north of Sacramento, and one in Acton, California, which is just outside of Los Angeles. And these are sanctuaries where the animals are our friends, not our food. They are places where the animals get to live out their lives, where we treat them like a lot, like other people in this country would treat their cats and dogs. You know, if they're sick, they get veterinary care. Um, you know, they're allowed to live out their lives, to enjoy their lives, uh, to be given, you know, the best uh, care possible. And they become ambassadors. You know, when people hear about Mario, the calf, for example, who came to our farm in Orland, California, uh, they're touched by his story. And, and Mario was born on a dairy farm, and he was very sick, and he was a male. And so for the dairy farmer, a male calf is not worth very much. And if that animal is sick, sometimes they're worth nothing. And so the dairy farm actually called a renderer to pick him up, and a renderer goes around from farm to farm and picks up dead animals to take them to the rendering plant where they're turned into soap and fertilizer and, and things like that. Uh, but this renderer uh, went to the dairy farm and he picked up this calf who was sick and injured, uh, and he decided that rather than taking him to the rendering plant, which, which happens, you know, animals that are not yet dead still go to these rendering plants, but this one trucker decided, you know what, I'm going to take this animal to farm sanctuary. So he did. And Mario is what we named him, and he now lives at our farm up in Orland, California. So, you know, that's an example of how these animals' stories can illustrate the kind of callousness that often exists in the factory farming industry, but also the human kindness that exists there with this truck driver who decided that this animal deserved better than to be thrown away when, when he was still alive. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about some of the events that you hold at your sanctuaries for people who want to visit and learn more and sort of immerse themselves in the in the atmosphere you've created on your sanctuaries. Talk to us about, you know, some of these cool events. I've been reading about them on your website. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, this coming weekend, uh, tomorrow, we ha our hoedown is going to be in Orland, California, 
And this is an event where we have hundreds of people, mainly from the Western United States, that come to the farm. We have presentations and speakers. Uh, we have a spe- special time on the farm to spend with the animals. So every day people can go up and hang out with the animals. We have vegan food all, you know, at every meal. And then we have music and dancing in the evening. And people are also allowed to camp out on the farm during our hoedown. So that is going to be this coming weekend in Orland, California. And then we have Hug a Farm Animal Day at our sanctuary in Acton, California, just outside of Los Angeles. That's going to be June 1st. And people can just come and hug a farm animal and mm-hmm. and spend time with, with happy animals and with people who also uh, share a concern about animal welfare. And then on the first weekend of August, we have our hoedown in Washington, New York. And just like the hoedown in Orland, California, we'll have speakers and vegan food and dancing and um, camping out and plenty of time on the farm with the animals. And then every year around Thanksgiving time, we have events where we turn the tables at Thanksgiving and the turkeys are the guests of honor instead of the main course. And <laughs> it's it's we call our, what we call our celebration for the turkeys, where we feed the turkeys instead of eating them, and we all enjoy a, a great vegan meal. And so we do that every year, too, and we often have speakers, including celebrities, that will sometimes come out to the farm and, and lend their support. Very cool. It sounds like a lot of fun. You know, when you started this organization, you know, a couple of decades and a half ago, what influence did you hope to have on factory farming in America? What was your what was your goal? Well, we've always wanted to end factory farming, uh, but you know, when we first started, you know, we didn't really have one year, five year, ten year goals of specific things we wanted to achieve. The main thing we wanted to do was just to witness what was happening, educate others about it, and encourage citizens just to become more aware and to make more mindful choices about our food, which is something that we're still doing every day, encouraging people to think about their food choices and to make choices that are more aligned with their own values. Because most people are compassionate, most people are humane, most people don't like cruelty. But unfortunately, most people are unwittingly supporting cruelty. And uh, and it doesn't have to be that way. You know, if, if we think more about our food choices, we can shift away from this factory farming system and eat less meat, or, or, or ideally no meat. But eating mm-hmm. less meat is a positive step. So we just encourage people to make steps. So with Farm Sanctuary, you know, we want to change how we relate to these other animals. We want to stop cruelty. We've been able to pass some laws uh, over the past, you know, 27 years. Um, but what makes me, I think, the most optimistic is the awareness that has been raised, uh, the fact that factory farming is now seen widely as a problem, not only among animal people, but among health professionals, among environmentalists, among people concerned about the well-being in rural communities. So there's now widespread opposition to the many harms caused by factory farming. And we will continue doing our part, educating people about the cruelties, but also about the benefits of plant-based eating. And, you know, from time to time we work on legislation uh, to ban certain cruelties. You know, right now there's a provision in the Farm Bill in Washington, D.C., in fact, and we're encouraging people to write to their elected officials, their representatives, and urge them to oppose the King Amendment in the Farm Bill. Now, this is an amendment that would undermine state laws that have been enacted in recent years 
to prevent some of the most egregious factory farming cruelties where you have, you know, animals routinely kept in cages where they can't move. There are some states that have passed laws saying that these animals deserve at least enough space to turn around and stretch their limbs. It's very modest. But this King Amendment to the Farm Bill would undermine even those minimal protections at the state level. So, uh, so we get involved in legislation, too. So, um, so it's about education, uh, advocacy, and rescue. And the sanctuaries are where animals get to live out good lives and we get to tell their stories. They become ambassadors and, and people become more aware of these issues and, and connect to these animals. And hopefully we'll be inspired to make some positive changes. Well, it sounds like there are a number of different angles that that you kind of have to look at this issue. I mean, there's certainly the legislative side, but there's only so much that we can legislate, mandate, and regulate. You know, and at some point, um, affecting the demand for the products that come out of factory farms may even be more powerful. We talk about the power of the purse sometimes on this show, and you know, if everyday Americans chose not to and had the information available to them to make choices, you know, for products that were not a part of this industry. Um, you know, if the demand dries up, <laughs> then then you've got a winner. And so that's something that we'll talk about in the next segment. What each of us can do to have a positive impact on uh, the food system that we're currently so reliant upon and what action we can take to rectify uh, this situation, not just for the animals, of course, but also for the environmental impact that the factory farms are creating and the human health impact, uh, the negative human health impact as well. So don't go away, folks. We've got much more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Thank you all for listening to us. I want to send a quick shout out to all my tweeps. Thank you for following me at, at Jill Buck. You can also follow Farm Sanctuary, Jean's organization that we've been talking about today. If you want to, their handle is at Farm Sanctuary. You can also check out their website, and I invite you to do it. It's a really good website with lots of information. And if nothing else, some really cute pictures of farm animals. I am enjoying looking at what I'm looking at. Um, you can check them out at www.farmsanctuary.org. Also, if you'd like to get more involved with the conversations that we're having on Go Green Radio and through my nonprofit organization, you can check us out at gogreeninitiative.org. And from there, you can get links to our YouTube channel, our Flickr photo stream, our Facebook page, all that good stuff and get involved with some of the things that we're doing. So, you know, over the course of the last five years of hosting Go Green Radio, which has been an awesome ride, I've had environmentalists on my show who see this trend of global urbanization as a great thing for the planet. Let's pack everybody into urban environments the best we can and leave lots of open green space. I've also had environmentalists on this show who disagree with that. And like it or not, one of the upshots of global urbanization is a disconnect between humans and their food supply. And there are a lot of kids out there, a lot of adults out there who will never come nose guard to nose guard with a cow or a pig or a chicken. They never pet them. They never get to touch them and never see them. And so they may never think twice about eating the meat that comes from these animals. Gene, I want to ask you, do you think that it's important for kids to be around farms and to be around farm animals so that they can intelligently form their conscience about their food choices? Yeah, I think it's important for children to grow up with a broader perspective than we tend to grow up with. And unfortunately, kids don't really know where their food comes from and develop very bad habits about what they eat. And, you know, so we start eating sugar and processed foods and animal foods and fast foods and soda pop. And it has consequences. You know, obesity has become an epidemic in our country. Um, We have, you know, more and more children that are, um, you know, have... uh, uh, short attention spans, and I think a lot of that is nutrition, but I think part of it also has to do with the environment we grow up in. So being in nature, being with animals is healthy in so many ways, and I think that it, it allows us to develop much healthier than if we're in a sort of fast-paced environment that's removed from nature. How do you think you might be able to impact that? I mean, Obviously, a lot of people go to schools and they try to get school programs going. They say, well, that's where all the kids are gathered for so many hours a day. But I tend to think that getting parents involved 
um, is is an even more powerful way. Um, you know, that's why I got my start. You know, after I got out of the Navy and and got more involved as a civilian in my community and and had three children, I got involved with PTA, and that organization was originally known as the National Congress of Mothers. That was before women had the right to vote. And I have found that working with organizations such as those, uh, such as PTA, PTOs. Um, you know, people who are natural child advocates tend to have a tremendous impact, not just on, you know, the children that they rear, but also on legislation. These are actually uh, groups of parents who will get together and get behind certain forms of legislation. I don't know how you feel about that, Jean, but do you see that a lot of parents are beginning to gravitate towards this idea of exposing their children to the source of their food supply and the morality involved in their food choices? Yes, I absolutely think that's happening. And, you know, I, I agree that parents need to be involved and, and should also be setting a good example for their kids and can play a role in positive programs at schools as well. You know, for instance, some schools are now uh, putting in community gardens and kids are growing some of their own food they have these salsa gardens where kids grow tomatoes and peppers that are then and that are then used to make salsa. So this is a great way for kids to become familiar with certain plant foods that are healthy, and when they consume them, and they they develop those habits. And when you grow something and then harvest it, you're more likely to consume it than if you're not very familiar with it. What about you know students who are studying? whether it's ag econ or ag business, you know, the ones who will be the producers of our food one day. What could be done, you know, in in their training to help them gravitate away from factory farming and, and towards a more healthy food production uh, configuration? Well, yeah, I think that's starting to happen, actually. Um, younger farmers now are setting out in new ways. They're being more innovative, the organic farming movement is growing by leaps and bounds. We also have eco-farming and eco-tourism around farms. We have bed and breakfast. We have pick-your-own operations. We have a food-not-lawns movement in urban areas where people who have houses with lawns are turning those into vegetable gardens. And there's opportunities for people in the service sector to actually go and change the lawn into a vegetable garden. So there's landscape architecture type stuff happening. Uh, there's creative uh, construction happening. Uh, there's indoor plants, uh, indoor farming, like uh, windowsill gardens or container gardens on a back porch or on a, um, on a, on a backyard area. So there's lots and lots of things that are starting to happen now that are very positive, and I think people from agricultural schools can be part of that urban farming, more sustainable farming, more healthful farming movement. Even in rural areas, you have people that have been in cities that are moving to rural areas, and they're bringing this mentality to be more respectful to earth and to produce food in a more sustainable way. Well, and it's not some newfangled 21st century notion. I mean, this is the way that food used to be produced. The factory farming situation isn't something that has 
always been the case. So it's almost kind of a renaissance uh, within the food industry. I mean, you know, I heard it when I was a kid, you are what you eat. And, you know, now we're hearing kind of a, a new twist on that, you know, eat your values. They say that, you know, in different places, even in Europe, you know, eat according to your values. And and we really haven't had the discussions, you know, that I think we need to have, but I, I believe it's happening more and more that that there there is a morality there is part of our conscience involved in our food choices and it's so easy to forget that when everything is so neatly packaged and as far as we know our food comes from the grocery store and that's all we know what's the grocery industry doing to help promote healthier farming well, the grocery industry realizes that consumers do not like factory farming, that consumers want to eat healthier food. Uh, so there has been some positive progress, um, and there's, for example, lots and lots of alternatives now to cow's milk that you can get at regular grocery stores. You can get almond milk or soy milk or coconut milk very easily. So that's a positive thing. You know, but, you know, the food industry is very industrialized, generally speaking. So, in some cases, the labels that you will see on products that suggest the animals are being treated very well can be misleading. So that's something just to be aware of. And, you know, going to farmer's markets is a very good way to get to know who is producing the food, to become more familiar with the production techniques, and, and, and to get closer to the source of your food. And I think that's the key message. The closer we can get to the source of our food, the better we will understand how it is grown and the better we will be able to make informed, thoughtful decisions that are aligned with our values. And they're aligned with our values for our health of our family and also with our environmental values as well. You know, we, we want to keep our planet clean and green and healthy for many generations to come. And this issue is just one of many ways that we can help to ensure that that comes to fruition. Gene, thanks for joining us on Go Green Radio. Thanks to all of our listeners for joining us as well. We'll be here same time, same place next week. Until then, everybody have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.